Night has come, and so have the shadows that once pulled me in against my will. I believe the promises made by those exaggerated figures that followed me, but I am no longer fooled by illusions. Their lies must stay outside. Up these darkened steps and past that door is the truth. My flashlight leads me to the file cabinet. It isn't locked. There are many files inside, but one in particular intrigues me. It's labeled Jest, in bold letters followed by a sequence of numbers. I open it to reveal a series of black and white photos. They show a man leaving a building, crossing a street, and alone inside a telephone booth. At first, I assume they are random individuals of no importance. But then I look closer. They are pictures of me. I turn to cast my light on the doorway and then back to the photos. I scan them, imagining the clicking of a camera's shutter as I view each one. I try to make sense of them by placing them in order. The booth, the street, the building. It's the last one that's the most telling. It was taken as I left the bank. They were watching me from the beginning. Atlanta, summer 1964. I sit at my desk at the headquarters of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, mulling over accounting records and figures. A few years ago, Martin was accused of tax evasion, which is comical since most of what he earns goes back into the movement. The man lives like a pauper. But we are trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. Gant has me sifting through financial records to ensure that Martin hasn't received any compensation that cannot be accounted for. I work with a particular column of numbers and notice the sum. $50,000. A flash of warmth surges up my neck. This figure is an anomaly, but I don't suspect any wrongdoing. At least not immediately. Though it troubles me to do so, I feel compelled to bring this to Gant's attention. I'll have to persuade him to see things as I see them, and that is a difficult task. His judgment of me is ruthless and immediate. Anything I question results in a questioning of me. I am exhausted by our exchange before it even begins. He walks past my open office door in a well-scented hurry. He is one of those handsome men who know they are handsome. Tall, with a face sculpted out of Georgia clay, he has a strange way of using his looks to make you feel inferior. It does not help matters that, as I approach his perfect image, I am slowed by a permanent hobble, my reward for surviving a childhood bout with polio. I watch Gant and his secretary walk swiftly down the hallway, but before I approach them, I go through my usual ritual of checking that my pant leg has not ridden up to reveal the stirrup of my brace. It creates an unattractive bulkiness under my trousers that annoys me to no end. I adjust my pants and smooth out the fabric so that it falls properly. I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable in my presence. Even FDR went through strained efforts to appear unaffected by polio. My co-workers shouldn't feel guilty about their ability to take gallant, even strides as they march alongside Dr. King while I lurch through the corridors of the SCLC. I struggle to catch up.
asking the back of Gant's head for a moment of his time. But he insists that he's in a hurry. Mr. Gant? Please, I say. Just five minutes. They pause briefly. He asks Susan to grab him some coffee and then turns to me. Five minutes, Estem. If this is about your Chicago proposal, I haven't looked over it or discussed it with Martin. No, it isn't about that. It's, well, sir, I was going over the figures for the donations, and while I'm sure this is probably minor, your point? A large sum of money, Mr. Gant, and I can't trace it to any source. Perhaps an old friend of King's who wants to remain anonymous?